Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. It covers Deuteronomy 21 through chapter 25, verse 19. And if you want to see all the previous studies that we've done, because we're not going to be able to get to all of the aspects here today. In fact, we're going to just focus on one specific area here today. But you can go to halal.info slash p49. That's p is in Peter 49. And you can see all of the studies that we've done on this previous passage. And that's a part of uh, Larry's newsletter. That's a part that goes out with that. Uh, so earlier in the week, we send out the link to the previous studies we've done. If you want to read ahead, see some of the things that we've talked about in, pre- in previous times. But one of the, <clears throat> one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is uh, continuing on with the theme that we've had about about these uh, er- these areas of uh, from Deuteronomy chapter six through uh, actually twenty five um, and twenty six actually is where it goes talks about the the ten commandments and elaborates on the ten commandments. So you may think that all of these aspects are just uh, a grab bag of a mishmash of different instructions, but actually they help they help explain these particular aspects. So in particular, we're in the section of the book of Deuteronomy called the Moshe's second address. And so he's addressing the second generation of Israel, and that covers from Deuteronomy chapter four through chapter twenty-eight. So we're in a section here from chapter six through chapter twenty-six that talks about the Ten Commandments, and specifically, in particular, this week we are looking at um, commandments six through ten. So in this uh, chapter nineteen through twenty-one, so picking up the part of what we're talking about here today, talking about the uh, commandment about you shall not murder. So this aspects of this section look at how you respect life. And from chapter 21 through uh, verse 14 of chapter 23, talks about adultery, but specifically about loyalty, because that's you know, the, the flip side of it. The, you could say the positive commandment when it says, you shall not commit adultery. The positive form of that is, you shall be loyal. So, it's talking about loyalty. So, thus, you'll see the different aspects of this particular commandment. And in uh, talking about stealing, the eighth commandment there, from uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 15 through 24, verse 7, you could basically sum that up as saying, stick to your own stuff. Your stuff is your stuff. Don't go after other people's stuff. And in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, verses 8 through 16, uh, talking about uh, being, you could say, about uh, not bearing false witness. Well, 
one other aspect of that is to be a good witness, to be trustworthy. And we'll be looking at some a few aspects of that, but most of what we'll be focusing on here today is the 10th commandment, which here is explained in Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, uh, and it goes actually through 26, verse 15. We're going to be stopping with where the uh, particular Torah portion stops today, but that will be the general content. So it's the 10th commandment on coveting. So covet, not a word that we often use, but you may think, well, I just desire somebody else's stuff. Well, one of the things that we'll be looking at today is a lot of what is involved with this desire. What is involved with this desire is more than just, oh, hey, that's a, that's a nice car. Boy, I like that car. It's far more involved with that. And what you'll see is that being content, to be content means to uh, be not desiring and acting to get something else. And we'll be looking more about that. So just a little bit of a recap as we move forward with this. Uh, when we were back in the Torah portion of Ve'etachanan, uh, we looked at, uh, and that covered Deuteronomy chapter 5, where you get the retelling of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is kind of the parallel to Exodus chapter 20, where you have the Ten Commandments. So so the key aspects, you could say, well, these are 10 words, 10 commandments, but really um, a number of people have lumped them into you know, pairs. Different people line them up differently. But this is one particular lining up of them. One pair you might say is don't remove the Lord, and that could include the, the first commandment and the sixth commandment about murder, to not erase the image of the Lord. And the second pairing, which could group the second commandment about idols and the seventh commandment about idolatry, could be summed up as saying, don't pervert the most important relationships in heaven and on earth. And hopefully you were seeing some of that in what we were going over today about perverting, twisting, distorting the relationships, both in heaven and on earth. A third group you could classify with the third commandment about blasphemy and the eighth commandment about stealing. You could group those together um, to do not kidnap or hijack the Lord's reputation. And that actually gets into something important that we'll be also looking at when we look at the tenth commandment here today. And... Moving on to the pairing of the fourth commandment about Shabbat or the Sabbath and the ninth commandment about false testimony or lying uh, under oath, you could uh, say that, you know, do not pervert the testimony of heaven on earth. And thus you could say the testimony of Shabbat, because what is that tied to? You see it in Exodus 20 tied to this is the creator of heaven and earth. And in Deuteronomy 5, this is the one who took you out of the house of bondage. So both of those aspects are hugely important. And we, you probably have saw you, or heard and even read today a few of those examples where it says, do this because I took you out or because you were a slave in the land of Egypt. So, and uh, the last pairing of 
these commandments. uh, Commandment five, honor your parents. And with the tenth commandment about do not covet, you could you could combine those together and saying, you know, do not usurp or seize something that's not yours. And remember, this is particularly important, is remember where the source of that comes from. That is actually behind what seemingly are the strange things that you see in the last part of our reading here today, like the leveret marriage. I mean, what is that all about? And the ox and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> muzzling the ox as it's treading out it's uh what it's treading out so just in a brief recap here of the sixth commandment because we've covered this on previous occasions this is the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth that is what israel is all about to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth because otherwise this could be like a smorgasbord like going to a buffet of different beliefs going to the buffet of baal going going to the buffet of all kinds of other various gods out there you could choose from all of them and one of the key things that comes with that is that there will be those that will try to destroy the kingdom of heaven and the message of the kingdom of heaven that is why the you could say the discipline of Israel has to be so harsh in some points is because you think about it what is the alternative if Israel is not on the earth where is the message of God on the earth there's various ways that have gone through various prophets. You know, see, first with, with uh, Noah came and he preached, proclaimed to that generation. But how many ended up on the ark? Eight. Eight ended up on the ark. Eight is great if you're among the eight. <laughs> yes. Yes. So... Then you see that the message was, went to Avraham you know, when he was Avraham back there in Mesopotamia to, hey, get up and leave. So he actually listened, got up and left. And then started the, you could say, the beachhead, the landing spot for the kingdom of heaven there in the land, which was the crossroads, crossroads of the world between the various superpowers of the time period. Because at the time that when Avram was going in there, you you read about it in the Torah, you've got the great Hittite army and the empire up to the north. You've got the Egyptian um, empire down to the south. And you have the various other empires that are out toward the east. All these are, are coming in and go moving through this particular land we call the promised land or in that time it was called uh, Canaan or Canaan that particular area was like a crossroads of the world so that was why it was important to establish this there so moving on from there we have a um, recap of the 7th commandment about being loyal and not uh, adulterous being loyal to being loyal to each other and the relationships you have to each other and also 
loyal to God. Now think about this again. If you are a part of a group that is hugely important to the future of the world, what is important for it to be together? It's important for it to stay together. Because what happens when you have a group that its strength is in its collective, in its togetherness, the strength in numbers, so to speak? If you break, if you divide, if you scatter that, what happens? It loses its strength. You do not get the reinforcement of each other on this. You know, like they call it today peer pressure. The peer pressure on one person to do something can be immense because of all the other people that are trying to convince them to do something. That pressure to move in a particular direction is immense now if it's for a good purpose that's a good thing for example if you are in a military unit or some sort of group that's accomplishing a great cause for you to all rally together and rally everybody to not lose hope in what it is that you're looking to do and the mission that you have that's a great thing however if you have lots of people that are pressuring the few to do something that is not a good end, that is, that's a, a very terrible outcome. A slight example of how those things go, you know, has been in times past related to, you know, whether you're in getting involved in substance abuse or some sort of other activity, that those sorts of things can be influenced by other people around you to make you feel like the outsider if you do not go along. Now, that is, is, that's bad peer pressure, where you are pressuring someone to move in a bad direction. So that is why it's important for Israel to be there at the, at the intersection of all the empires for a long period of Earth's history, and to stay together with a particular message from heaven and not twist, not pervert, not distort that message. Because if you have a group that their reason for being, what they're supposed to be doing, it just gets totally distorted and messed up from one to the other, one generation of, of people in the group to another, the organization falls apart. That's where they talk about like what happens when you have a company and it starts out and it starts doing great things and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. If they do not work extremely hard to keep their original reason for being there and their original ethics for being there, if they don't keep all that together, uh, the company will start falling apart because the people who are come in the door the new hires or whatever, have no clue of what, why this company exists. If nobody cares, they're just like, well, what, why should I care about this mission statement that's either above the door or in my employee handbook? Why should I care about it? If my manager doesn't care about it and his manager doesn't care about it and we never talk about it, we never live it, why should I care about it? 
So thus is why you, it's hugely important for these things to come down from generation to generation so that the legacy of Israel is held together. And it works in a society like Israel. It works within a country like ours. We say, like, okay, we've got founding documents. We've talked about them here recently. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. This is like, okay, this is why we exist. Now, here we are coming up on, you know, almost two and a half centuries later. Do we even care? So, yeah, it's like, do we care about those, those reasons, those, the principles, the responsibilities that all come with that? Do we even care anymore? Is that transmitted from one generation to another as to why this particular country should exist? Now, you see that it's written here in the Bible when you go through, uh, start going through the judges and you move on into the other historical books and then you move into the prophets when they're, when they're appealing to the people through all kinds of different ways to come back, to turn back, to repent. Till finally, you, you get two major gut punches with the exiles of the northern tribes and then the exiles of the southern tribes and the destruction of the temple. So, big gut punch. And then, there have been multiple gut punches in Israel. So, that message that we have here, it's encapsulated in marriages and loyalties and this and that. That is why these things are so important. You know, we in modern society can just, you know, think about marriages as being, eh, you know, yeah, maybe I'll get married. Eh, is it really worth it? You know, you see the trends in the wider society. People are just, eh, you know, do I start a family? Nah, you know, uh, what are really the purpose of kids? They just kind of drain, drain your income, drain your time, you know, drain your ability to travel the world. So people will, people will think that and wonder why it is that we have a society here today where uh, the population of the United States, you know, would be going in reverse. <laughs> it would be going in reverse. So thus you see the importance of these things related to, to loyalty, related to marriage, related to relationships between people. These things are hugely important but not just to be like a social club. You have to have a reason to be together and to propagate that, to keep that message going from one generation to the next generation. Otherwise, you may end up with people later on, and go, well, why are we here? I don't know. I had nothing else better to do today. Well, let's just show up there. Maybe they've got, um, maybe they've got good donuts. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, good, good haystacks, maybe. So, just a little brief recap here on the Eighth Commandment. It covers Deuteronomy 23:15 through 24:7. Just some kind of big, big picture ideas in there. Um, you know, think of some big things that people wonder about and sticking to your own stuff is like, are you actually responsible for the things that are in your care? Now, you might have noticed in this section this strange thing about lost and found. Who is the lost and found? Who are the lost and found? 
We all are the lost and found. Meaning that if we come across somebody else's stuff, what are we supposed to do with it? Try to figure out where it came from. Basically, you know, it's a slight variation on going back to Genesis with uh, Cain was like, who? My brother's keeper? What? Well, yeah, we do actually have responsibility for others. So some people take that way overboard and say, well, now I'm going to stick my nose into everything you're doing. No, no, that's not talking about being your brother's keeper or uh, people may try to rephrase it as be your brother's jailer. No, no, that's not the way it says. It's basically to protect other people. Protect other people by protecting if things go missing or that kind of thing. So that's being a part of not only just actively stealing, but actively returning, act, actively restoring for other people. And, you know, that gets into uh, what people may think of with Yeshua's message about render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And, you know, Larry made a great point uh, some time back talking about that, um, you know, Render unto God the things that are God's. Well, what is God's? And that's like everything. Everything is God's. But more specifically, when we were going through this passage, what are the things that are God's when you're talking about the land of Israel? Then you can understand the instructions about, you know, if you're going through a field or something, you know, it is, o- it is okay to just take a nibble or something. But don't go in with a bucket. Don't go in with a, with a tractor or a harvester and start <laughs> cleaning out your brother's field. No, that's, that's, not, that's not what that's talking about whatsoever. I'd like to share a story that happened uh, many, many years ago. I'm, I'm thinking um, my daughter is 60, so oh, maybe 55 years ago, uh, my... Uh, uh, the person who had introduced me to Christ, his wife and I had became really good friends. And uh, we were going down uh, a road in Sebastopol, and the apples were really fresh. And so uh, I don't think I was yet baptized, but we were on that road. But anyway, uh, we thought, let's, let's get some of these apples. And so uh, we were picking up apples like crazy. I mean, we were just going to load up the car with them. And uh, the farmer came out, and he said, uh, Girls, you want to put all those apples back? He says, But I'll tell you what. I see you ladies both have skirts on. So you may put as many apples in your, as will fit in your skirt uh, that is proper, and then you may go. So that reminds me of that, is that, uh, you know, we were ready to steal the whole tree. <laughs> but, uh, but the farmer uh, must have been a Christian because uh, he knows this passage because he allowed us to take what we could put in our skirt and then, and then uh, said, please don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. I just wanted to comment about that. Being naive, you know, I, I would see a tree filled with something too, but I, 
I, you know, in Sebastopol now, I know as I'm an adult, but I would see those trees and I would have probably thought the same thing. So I'm thinking, wow, look at all those apples just going to waste. You don't realize that it's his produce, that it's his income and everything. But as you, as you grow older you, and you become knowledgeable as you gain wisdom, you realize, oh, wow, that's someone's, you know, they, they could sell it anywhere. But you don't, you know, when you're young, you don't think that, you know, as with anything. And even when you find something, I mean, if there's no one there, you know, and I did that one time when I first became a Christian. I found a, a big, huge hunk of gold on a gold chain, and I wanted it. And then I thought, well, let me just go turn it in. Well, I turned it in, and I don't know, a couple months later, I came back. No one had, nobody had claimed it. So now I have this big gold medallion and the chain. So even though you don't want to do something right, you must always, it feels better when you do. So moving on to the discussion about the Ninth Commandment, just briefly talking about being trustworthy and testifying truthfully, which covers uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, 8 through 16. Um, some thoughts on that, that you probably have some other reflections over the, over the years, but uh, that old phrase about making your word your bond, that's kind of key into that, you know, we can read this, this instruction that we have in the Torah. It's like, if you make a vow, you have to pay it. So, thus we get into the Gospels, it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't just make a vow. So, people will think, well, then, you know, Yeshua is trying to uh, rewrite or abrogate or abolish the instructions related about making vows. No, the point is, is that if you make a vow, you have to keep it because what is the other side of making a vow to heaven? That heaven is making a vow to you. So we, we think of like doing to others what you'd want them to do to you. Well, if you make a vow to heaven, it's like, eh, you know, maybe if I feel like it, I'll, I'll do it. Or if it's convenient, or, you know, if it's on my way to somewhere, then I'll, I'll take care of it. Well, do we want heaven to treat the <laughs> promises of heaven with us like that way? You know, yes, um, we have in the, in the new covenant promise, it ends with, you know, and I'll remember your iniquities no more. If I feel like it, yeah. if it's convenient, if it's on my way, you know, whatever, if... Yeah, if you, if you fill up the treasury enough, then, then maybe I'll take care of it. So, do we want heaven to treat us like we treat heaven if we do have promises and then don't fulfill them? So, thus, you have Yeshua's instruction to say, hey, maybe it's best not to vow at all. Not that vows are bad, but just remember what you're getting yourself into when you do so. It's not something to do to either make yourself feel better or lift up yourself in someone's eyes or emphasize something that you're saying or something like that. No, you are making a promise to heaven. Heaven has made promises to us. So, which gets us into the topic where we'll be spending our time mostly today here on the 10th commandment about being content, which covers... Uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, and the discussion actually goes into next week's uh, passage in chapter 26, verse 15. Yes, Anne. Um, question is, um, okay, verse, let's see now. 
Okay, um, chapter 22. 22? I guess I've gone, gone back a little bit. Verse 28, you know, where um, a man finds a young woman who's a virgin and not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out. And the difference between seizes her and verse 25, man forces her, and is she... Uh, is, is that a rape? Either one of those are rapes or not? Is it the same? <clears throat> and in the end, he's humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. He actually has a, a fine of 50 shekels for seizing her. But um, what's the difference between those uh, two different words in Hebrew? Or I'm not sure. Well, yeah, the one thing about uh, seizing is... Um you know, Lakak basically he's taking something that is not yours and now making it yours. So one of the differences is that what is the back in verse twenty five, um she is engaged. So, you know, we may think of engagement as oh, okay, you know, do you send out the invitations? Maybe you're not sending out the invitations at that particular point in time. But in the biblical world and in the culture of this particular time when this is written, engagement was a big deal. Engagement was a big deal. And you, to break things off, to disrupt the engagement, was considered actually intruding into the marriage itself. So thus, you are sort of, not quite, but sort of then, uh, going after someone else's wife at this point. She's not his wife at one point, at this particular point I was talking about, but engaged. Now, the other one is that she's not engaged. She's still in her father's house. So, in the sense, this one who's done this to her is going into her father's house, in a sense, and doing this, instead of going into the engaged woman's husband's house in doing this. So that's, you see a little bit of a distinction there, but still those things being uh, not good, not good things that are, are done to relationships that are already in place because for, you know, for the girl in her father's house, you know, you are intruding upon the father's opportunity to then you know, shepherd her into the new life, the new house with the husband. And thus with the engaged woman, you're intruding into his house to disrupt his relationship with uh, his soon-to-be wife. So, you know, things get mucked up in the world, but what we see here is this is the, the particular good pattern now, we may have come from backgrounds where things get disrupted and uh, maybe the order of things get mixed up. But one of the things that we see in this is that's why you could say a lot of the death penalty related, the penalty of, of death, the serious things of this were heaped upon the Mashiach for this. So this is why when uh, Paul goes in and he's, he's talking about that's the certificate of ordinances that was against us. Basically, the penalty, these kinds of stiff penalties that were against us, that he has taken these things on. He has taken those things on so that we, when we go into the 
the body, the uh, trust of Messiah, the family of the Messiah, the family of God, those things that were due to us have now been given to the Mashiach. Those penalties. We were under death before. We were under the penalty of death. But those things of death were given to the Messiah. Yes. Okay, so now, how does this work for us? If we are going to, if God gave us a bill of divorce, how do we remarry him legally? Christ, we're supposed to be Christ's bride, right? Yeah. So, so that's, how are we going to legally get married? I think something's in here. I mean, I hear it in, well, in, that's, in my ear, that's but what I, the I think whole it's something thing, in my spirit. I mean, you see the How's that gonna the up? engagement, you could say, is has begun. And that's us, uh, right. part, of, part of what the whole thing with the, uh, the word made flesh was all about. The, so the engagement and then when you see in revelation and such like that you get the picture of the um the city itself described as like a bride right adorned for the husband so you get this this picture of that being finally brought together and even when you see the parable of the the ten virgins right. that's also another example that hey there's this expectation of the wedding party now funny. coming and having the a uh, full connection of marriage there together with the Mashiach and the family of God together. So we weren't legally married before, and now you he's can say us, engaged. We but, were engaged to God. But when remember, he took us out in, engagement in the Bible is—it's almost like it's being married. Different. Yeah, but an engagement it is, is the promise. Now, like married. we talked about with vows. So he didn't. Want what is the promise of heaven? How wishy-washy is that engagement? Well, then how can we? Marry is it, it going to happen? I don't know. How is it gonna, how are we going to get married legally now? Uh, it's a promise. He promises he's going to marry us. He's going to figure it it's out. It's a right? promise. So yeah, but we're, his promise is that we're going to be in his new government, right? Right, but the thing, though, is, is that what is, when it talks about, like, in Revelation at the end of it, so the dwelling place of God is with mankind. Yeah, on earth. Do we then just kind of hang out somewhere else? No, we're not going to heaven. No. We are... In the presence of God at that particular point. The bride. So, thus, we who were waiting for the consummation have now the full relationship, the full connection. The one year. So, there you go. You've got that picture of the promise of... That's, that's why... These sorts of things we can, in modern society, take lightly. Engagement. Oh, you just kind of get engaged whenever, you know, got passed by the jewelry store and you, you get engaged. We take these things lightly. We take relationships lightly. We take promises lightly. But when you're talking about the one who created heaven and earth, who's trying to clean up this mess that has come about for, you know, humanity's decision to go some other direction, that's something quite different. So these promises that are made, we can depend upon them. So one of the things that we're being trained to do is we are being trained to be dependable, trustworthy, faithful people. So just like heaven is faithful, heaven is trustworthy, heaven is dependable, so then we who are children of God are training to be trustworthy, dependable people. And that not only just dependable with our relationship with heaven, but from that, our relationship with other people. So we become trustworthy, dependable, faithful people. 
which then moves on into what you see in this particular passage that uh, we're looking at in our passage here today. You can almost think of this as sort of like an eightfold path as to kind of riff on some of what uh, some other belief systems in the world believe in. Well, is this really an eightfold path of talking about coveting and about treating others fairly? Or is this just a mishmash of different instructions? So, for example, first one, uh, you shall not pervert justice, which uh, covers uh, chapter 24, verses 17 and 18. Then in Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, about the forgotten sheaves and clusters and and the, the branches and whatever. And then on Deuteronomy 25, first three verses about, you know, 40 lashes and no more. Then you get the instruction there in Deuteronomy 25, 4, we were mentioned earlier, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Then in chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, you've got discussion on what we call the Leverite marriage, the Levir. And in chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, you got this strange thing talking about the wife's underhanded move to save her husband. Then you've got in Deuteronomy 25, uh, 13 through 16, you know, you shall have a fair and just weight and measure as it goes into. Then you got, as it ends out there in chapter 25, uh, 17 through 19, blot out the memory of Amalek. So it's like, is this just a big mishmash of stuff? Or is this really you know, eightfold path in the same direction. Yes. So is the way that you worded number six a callback to when Abraham said, put your hand under my thigh? <sighs> well, at, at least you might say it's in the uh, same zone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so <clears throat> moving on here first to the first section on, you know, you shall not pervert justice in Deuteronomy 24 verses 17 through um, 17 and 18. One of the things that we've already seen is that heaven's reputation for impartiality and judgment is there. So distorting, distorting judge justice as the people of uh, God distorts the Holy One's character in the eyes of the world. So we talked about that in relation to blasphemy. So this is something else that comes into place with perverting justice. That if we are perverting um, the deciding between right and wrong in our human interactions, we are perverting justice in the world. Because um, in Deuteronomy 1 and Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 1.17 and Deuteronomy 10.17, it emphasizes that the Lord is justice. The Lord is right in deciding right from wrong. So, if the Lord is justice, and now he's saying, here, don't pervert justice in how you apply justice. So, we, in taking the words of God and deciding what is right and what is wrong from that, we cannot pervert it. And in this case, that perversion is um, the word nata, which nata means to stretch, you know, pull out of shape, bend, which is very interesting because nata is also used for staff and is even used for bed. So you get this picture of something that gives you support, whether you're standing or whether you're laying down, that this is something that is supposed to bring support. But it is also used for stretching. 
you know, pulling, bending. So the interesting picture that you're getting is that something that is supposed to give support for society, which is justice, is now being stretched, bent, moved out of place. So that's a very interesting picture that to, to keep in mind is that, and that reflects on God's character because God's saying, hey, I am justice. I don't pervert justice. I'm not twisting the way the world is supposed to work around for any particular, <laughs> yeah, the, the, yes, definitely not uh, distorting the world. So another thing is uh, you see that with this not distorting the justice for, for the foreigners and the fatherless. So the foreigners and the fatherless, basically these are, folk who are, you could say, fish out of water. Because I don't know if you ever traveled to a foreign country where you do not understand the language, don't understand the law system, you don't understand <laughs> customs barely or anything like that. You are just like almost helpless to someone who can knows the language, knows what you should be doing, this and that and the other. I remember first time I landed in Korea trying to get through customs. <laughs> yeah, customs, because you know the customs agent was like, actually physically directing you to go certain places and the uh the handler the ones that were there to help us were like no no and having an argument with the customs guy to then take us back over to where we should be going so without that i would have been lost trying to figure out what was going on with this particular uh situation so in this case if you're dealing with people who are not familiar with your particular system and the, the, the fatherless who don't have a father to help guide them through life and to fend off anything that is trying to take this child in a different and the wrong direction, you know, thus it falls to those who are to bring justice right and wrong to make sure that things don't get bent, twisted, stretched. And those relationships that right and wrong are truly right and wrong for them. And then also with the widow, it says, you know, don't hold a widow's garment as collateral. So the, the true literal sense is that you are not to, um, you know, because basically if you hold this collateral, then what does that mean if there's a problem with the repayment of the debt? You seize the collateral. So basically, you confiscate it. So thus, what is the widow left with? Not what she needs for, in this case, warmth or covering. So you basically are, are saying, okay, well, what sort of alternative do you have to work, for, work with? Is there a, the kinsman redeemer who's going to come in to help with the situation? Is there some alternative resolution you can, you can come into to help with the situation? Another section in there talking about uh, the forgotten sheaves or clusters at harvest. So one lesson we can get from this is about not to be greedy for profit, basically trying to get everything. If you didn't make it on the first pass through, then you make another pass through, and then you make another pass just to make sure everything, you got every particular thing that, that goes in there so that nothing gets wasted and you get every revenue opportunity you possibly can with that. But one thing, you know, we were talking earlier about orchards and, and uh, those particular situations, but remember, well, where, does, you know, where do the apples ultimately come from? 
you know, did did the did the farmer get there and you know whip up his apple recipe and uh, make it make it happen? No. You you might say, well, he, he got the seed from from the uh, from the seed provider. He got this from this provider. He got that from that provider. Maybe he bought the trees that were already from a nursery or something like that. No, the ultimate designer, the ultimate creator of everything is the Lord. And the one that actually makes it possible for things to happen is the Lord. And especially in the land that the Lord has set aside on the earth to be the base of operations for the rescue of the planet, you know, the land of Israel there, even more so to say, hey, what comes out of this ground you know, you can't take it for granted, and you certainly can't oppress people for thinking that, hey, this is yours. And we also see this uh, command lived out in the lives of uh, Ruth and Boaz there in Ruth chapter 2, where, you know, she comes in, wants to glean in the, in the fields, but Boaz says, hey, no, don't go anywhere else. Just go to my fields, and I'll specifically make sure that you have no problems there with the, uh, with the field crews in the process. And we see an interesting illustration of this in uh, Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28 with the, uh, the Phoenician woman, because it's an interesting allusion to this, uh, you know, now remember this is allusion, not illusion, Two different words. Allusion means referring to something uh, written somewhere else versus illusion meaning yeah, it doesn't really exist. So Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. So Yeshua went away from there, and there is specifically the northwest shore of Galilee um, in uh, Gennesaret, the area, and uh, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from there uh, in that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And he did not answer her a word. And his uh, disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered and said to her, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But he said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Yeshua said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done to you, as, uh, done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So one of the particular things you could say important to remember uh, vocabulary-wise is that dog being people of the nations. We saw that even in the passage that we're looking at today of in the Torah where dog is referred to as those that are the other. Now, one of the interesting things where you see in this part is that this woman's trust in the Holy One of Israel, she really took a giant leap into the kingdom. And thus, what you see, similarly to what you see in the Gospels and also with uh, Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 of these nations being lifted up in the sheep in, in, the, in the form of these unclean animals, that's the picture of there that was saying that um, not that everything is now common, but 
when the things that were considered to be common are now brought up and made holy. And it's specifically in reference to people in this particular point, because you had uh, Cornelius showed up right afterward. So then Peter understood originally, immediately that this was a lesson about people and not just about animals, which kind of gets to the other point of what we'll be going here shortly about the ox and the pounding out the grain. But the interesting thing that we see in Scripture is this reversal, this reversal of the native of Israel may call others dogs. But you see in Scripture that those who do not really stay loyal to God, they end up becoming called dogs. And there's examples of it in uh, Psalm 59, verse 6. And um, let's see, in Philippians uh, 3, verse 2, and Revelation 20, verse 15, specifically that particular one, because it talks about on the outside are dogs outside of the city of God there. When the city of God comes down, outside are the dogs. So those in particular who think they may be a part of the family of God just because of lineage and genetic connections, not entirely the case because they may put themselves outside the kingdom because they did not actually trust in the words of God. Did not actually trust in the words of God. On to, the th- on to the third aspect of this, so about the 40 lashes and no more, found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 through 3. Now, um, this uh, judicial tradition of Israel was to mete out only 39 lashes, or the 40 lashes minus one, in case that there was a miscount, in case that you it forgot one as you were beating him, and uh, thus you went over 40. So thus they went to 39. And uh, that's described in specifically in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 21 through 27, where he was talking about how he had been persecuted for the way and that he had been lashed five times, you know, 40 minus 1, or 39 times. Now, in later times, these lashings were meted out if one couldn't pay for restitution, and that's recorded in the Mishnah, in the tractate uh, Makot. And one of the particular points of this is that we should not seek more, quote, justice, unquote, from the accused than what is actually meted out. And if we don't think, hey, this person didn't get punished enough, to ultimately remember, hey, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And interestingly in that, Vengeance is mine and retribution, which is recorded in uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, and also in Psalm 94, verse 1. And then it's quoted in uh, Romans chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 10. But the interesting thing about justice being stretched against the accused here, or perverted against the accused, that you are giving them more punishment than they should get, letting punishment go further than it should, is that in Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, it says that the Lord will judge his people. 
Now, judge there being din or crino, which is where we get uh, kind of like crime and such like that. But one of the one of the key things is that a warning for the people of God that they have to be able to distinguish good and bad. And also that God is going to look at the people of God and distinguish good from bad. Because one of the things where it, where it talks about that, the, that it says the Lord will, often is translated, the Lord will vindicate his people. And as it goes on, you could sort of say, okay, the context is they will be vindicated. But the aspect of vindication comes for whom? You could say what we commonly call the remnant, those who stay loyal, those who are returned. So, uh, yes, Larry, you had a uh, comment there? For 39 or 40 lashes, the shock to the body was so great that it was often fatal. So it was not, it was, that becomes a capital punishment instead of just a straight punishment. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting about descriptions on, on stoning too, because uh, you get two kind of pictures um, in the apostolic writings about stoning. Um, because you had the ideas of actually throwing rocks at people, but as is actually recorded in the Talmud about that is, and this is more of like executing people, is basically you throw them off of a cliff, a high cliff, and if they survive, then you drop a big rock on them. So that's, that's the stoning part of that. Uh, yes, kill them dead. Yes. But it's interesting also in that, in that tractate where it's talking about that um, they have this elaborate system for appeals that's happening up to this point. And if you have other witnesses that come in, or if the accused themselves says, I've got something else to add, they stop everything and they pull them back in and they go through the, the trial again. And, then, and it says in there, even if he does it four times, even five times, meaning that's kind of an idiom for you know, 99, 77 times, 70 times, seven times, you just keep doing that. And if it's something relevant, you've got to just stop it and uh, do a trial to figure it out. So you see that uh, mirrored to some degree in modern justice systems with the levels of appeal. Now, you know, you could say that some people will try to take advantage of the appeals, but that's also something that's been considered in ancient times is that, yeah, people will try to take advantage of it. But the point is, is that if you are going to carry out capital punishment, you just have to make doubly sure. And in this particular tractate where it talks about the uh, sad thing of the, the pushing and the dropping, uh, um, they also talk about what happens to the witnesses. If in all these times where they drag the guy back in from the point of execution to can retry the situation to rehear the evidence. If anybody was found to have been um, bearing false witness, yeah, outcome not good. Yeah, as the Torah says, that they get what was supposed to happen to the person that they were testifying falsely about. Ah, so 
So on uh, here to this, think about not muzzling the ox while it's threshing in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Now, it's kind of interesting that uh, there have been some post-first century Jewish commentators such as Rashi, which were saying, insisting, this has nothing to do with people. This is only about animals. Yet, uh, in Josephus' writings there, which is first century, uh, he notes that this indeed was a practice of applying this particular verse to people and saying, hey, people need to be justly compensated from the work that they do. So you see, in uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this instruction metaphorically twice when he was talking about how a servant of the, the way has to be compensated from the task. And you find that in 1 Corinthians 9.8 and 1 Timothy 5.18. But in both of those passages includes the context of these warnings that, hey, both the ministers, the servants of the word, the servants of the gospel, uh, they can't be <laughs> bloodsuckers on the community, on the assembly. And also those who are receiving help, they can't be bloodsuckers either. It's kind of where you get those passages where it says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So it's like, we're here to help you. We're here to provide help. But if you are just a leech on the generosity of the people, it's like, it's better for you and for everybody to say, hey, give you the nudge uh, to detach you from your uh, blood-sucking activity on the lifeblood of the community to say, ah, this has to stop. You have to uh, move on and support yourself. Which is why Paul was saying, hey, I could do this, but I didn't. I had this, this right, so you could say, or this instruction from the Torah, but I didn't take that because why? I didn't, he says, I didn't want this, anyone to think that I was just trying to profit from peddling the gospel. I didn't want that to get in the way of the message whatsoever. Yes, Larry. Larry has a comment over here. In one of those, in one of those times that that happened, he said, what, did you think he was talking about animals? Yes. That's kind of funny that he said it that way. Yes. Yes, yeah, specifically. So... Yeah, well, people can blame all kinds of things uh, for what happens in society. But the interesting thing is that uh, <laughs> we'll be getting to that at the, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. But um, people will be trying to blame all sorts of things for the evil that comes on the world. And yes, and eventually the Lord will just say, no, look, I'm the one who did this. So this is why it's coming to an end. It is coming to an end to bring it back to the way it was supposed to be to begin with. So closing out here with just a, a few last parts of this on, uh, we're talking about uh, Leverite marriage, this uh, wife coming in to intervene in this argument and uh, uh, was it her reach exceeding her grasp or something or other, uh, and blotting out the memory of Amalek. There, it seems kind of strange to throw that in at the end. And what on earth is this all just a part of this big mishmash grab bag of stuff that's just thrown in because 
you know, they're just writing down as like, oh yeah, throw that in. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, I, I forgot to say something about that and throw that in. Or are all these things actually related together? You know, for example, with the with the Leverite marriage, we'd already talked about the the goal of of lineage and legacy, and that that being important. So, you know, in ancient customs, that this was the way that you made sure that your lineage, your legacy would continue. Now, today we've got more streamlined forms such as adoption and such where you can uh, make things continue on with the, with the legacy, even if you, know, you yourself don't have children. But in this particular time, in this particular place, and with these particular people, that these core, the 12 tribes, were the core, the starting point for this people of God, the root, to be what Israel would be. And they were to take the legacy of what Israel was set up to be into the nations around it. So thus, these names, you know, this is not just your family name, make sure it passes from one generation to the other. This is what your name actually means, your reputation, your character, your legacy, making sure that goes on from one generation to the next. Yes. So, just first time I think about this, but um, what is the order in which a wife, this is a tech, more of a technicality, what would, be, what would be the order in which the wife gets married to the brothers? So, for example, uh, with, with the, the first time we ever see this in the Bible is with Judah and his sons, right. but that's what you're not supposed to do. <laughs> but the order, the order went from, okay, you married the oldest, and he went down. That makes, that makes sense. You just go oldest, and you go down. But what were to happen if, God forbid, someone were to marry, like, if, if, if the second son were to marry the, uh, the youngest, or not, I'm sorry, if the second son were to marry a wife and his first son already had a wife, am I, am I clear on that question? So the first son is already married, he has a wife, and he has kids. But then the second brother gets married, has a wife, doesn't have kids second brother dies there's no and there's a and there's a younger brother who isn't married yet and who's looking to get married would the younger brother take the wife or would the older brother take the wife that's an interesting question i'd have to look into that further because you'd you would think that there would be some sort of discussion on on that for something where there is no particular legacy from a given house you know is it to just have it from those uh, houses within a particular family that have no children already—that's an interesting question. I have to have to look into that one because I'm sure someone has thought of that at some particular point. That has to be. Yes, yeah, I have to dive into that because that doesn't seem like a detail that someone would have uh, overlooked at some particular point in time. So. Going on to the uh, the wife's uh, move to save her husband. Now, one of the the things that you know you talk about the duty to de-escalate the situation. That for for self defense, you should try to make sure that a situation is brought back from 
the brink of disaster. So do you just jump in at any particular point in time? But you also have that's the lineage or the legacy of her target of where she's uh, in- injecting herself into the situation, you might say, that that has been put in jeopardy. So the lineage of the target of her action is now being put in jeopardy by her action without some sort of a trial. So the case being made that you are, in a sense, um, ending the family line of where he would be going without there being some sort of a uh, situation of adjudication. And if it truly wasn't self-defense, there are also consequences for the taking of a life of future generations. Now, again, this is why this discussion of lineage and legacy is so important when you are talking about the people of God establishing themselves on the earth to then continue and be the propagators on all the world. Lastly, we close out with a blotting out the memory of Amalek there. Now, just in the recap, it talks about this in the particular passage because uh, it's, it mentions in there that Amalek was attacking from behind, attacking the weakest members of it. So again, this section is talking about legacy, the things that pass on, watching out and uh, not grasping after something that is not yours. So Amalek continued to reach out and grasp after Israel's legacy from one time after another after another. But the way that they were going about it was going after, not going up after the most, the strongest part of Israel, but going after the weakest part of it. That was one of the big things when, remember when we went through talking about uh, Bilam? Bilam's attack upon Israel by bringing in uh, the bringing in Midian for a sneak attack on the society went after a big weakness of people and specifically of men. So attacking, attacking weaknesses, attacking weaknesses, attacking weaknesses. So thus Amalek being this, this force that is always going after weaknesses. And then you see later on with Agog and his descendants of, of Haman, yeah, boo, <laughs> were again attacking Israel's legacy. And the abrupt nature of, hey, these points in history have to be stopped, that this particular group of people, their legacy cannot continue. Yeah, it cannot continue on. And we've seen examples throughout history where you have these societies that are steeped in just unspeakable sorts of things. Now, there are individuals in those societies that can be delivered out of that, but the societies themselves, they just have to end because they are just propagating this from generation after generation. I mean, just think in in the past 100 years where you've got these totalitarian regimes, and some are in existence today, but they are just propagating from generation to generation. And what are they doing? They're going after the weakest. 
They're going after the children, getting them as early as they possibly can, in some cases, taking them away from their parents to propagate and and drop this drivel into their skulls to the point where they don't know any better. They're getting them, you know, at the point or even before, you know, they don't know their left hand from their right hand, which is the biblical idiom of, you know, their discernment is really not developed well even if it's spiritual, moral development that can come much later on in a person's or even a civilization's um, development. But here today we see that what happens if you get children, really young age, totally twist their view of the world around where even if you then come in later and say, no, 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 this is what you've been told is just completely wrong, they won't believe you. They won't believe you. So, thus, when we get through to the end of this, see that some commonalities that we can see in these aspects of talking about the 10th commandment about coveting, now we can sort of see the different aspects of what coveting means. It's not just, oh, yeah, that's, that's nice. I like that, what someone else has. This is, you know, not really protecting other people not really realizing that it's kind of a flippant way to say, but we're all in this together, but you're all on the same path. We talk about being in the body of Messiah, being in here together, that we're going in this road together. We should look out for each other. Yes, when there's other people in the community, in our local community of the body of Messiah, that we look out for the needs, we take care of the needs that are there. We actively look out for them. And also to defend, that's the example of Amalek there, is defend against those that are looking to block people's way, to go after and keep the most vulnerable people from making it on this way, making this way toward the kingdom of God. So that's actively looking for people's needs and actively defending you know, if we can in the ways that we can. So that's where we get to the end of our conversation here today. Any last thoughts before, uh, Larry? Um, I don't remember going over the mixing of yarns and, and stuff and mixing of animals that are pulling the, that's, to me, that's a little dubious. I don't understand what. <laughs> I, I listened to um, um, Monty Judah last night and he said, He's saying, don't be double-minded, like, like Messiah said to Peter when, when he f- fell through the water, you know. Why are you being double-minded? And, and then when John said, uh, a double-minded person should not expect anything from God. You know, if you, if you pray and you don't expect him to, well, to, 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 to address your problem, then you shouldn't expect anything from him. And I and I guess I don't know. Does that sound like what the what it really means that you don't? Because to yeah. us, we have all of our stuff is mixed together. Yeah, that that aspect is, um, and one of the things the uh, Apostle Paul really brings out from one of those uh, Torah commands is about une- unequally yoked. So, and uh, Yeshua also talked about that as well, because you don't want to have people that are really completely different pulling in the same, supposed to be in the same direction. You know, that's why the 
Paul is his advice related to uh, if you have unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse, what do you do in that situation? You know, because you're again sort of pulling not directly in the same direction, and it's not only just for the couple because if there are children involved, then where is this you know, metaphorical cart of your legacy? Where are the parents pulling the child with this cart of the legacy? Where is it going? If one's going one direction and the other parent is going another direction, you know, is that cart going to go anywhere? That, that can be a huge problem. And then when you get into the grouping together of you know, believers and non-believers, you can have a hugely bad situation, which is why it talks in there about uh, not forming alliances with people of other nations, especially Amalek, <laughs> but uh, not forming alliances with people that are just not pulling in the same direction you are. Now, we see later on in Israel's history that there were some groups of people that proved themselves to be pulling in the same direction of Israel. But Israel also made alliances, marriages. They got unequally yoked with uh, powers that were not pulling in the same direction. Uh, later on in Israel's history, Egypt being a key one of those. Well, left them hanging high and dry. So got them thinking that, hey, they could pull away from, uh, I think it was Babylon at that point, was coming after Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, then when they needed him, they just were gone, left him to be uh, sieged. So I don't know if that helps there, but it's the... Linen and wool. Uh, don't mix linen and wool. The teaching, I think it was Daniel was giving a teaching. He said, that's because that was the priest's garment, and you're not a priest, so you can't have that kind of garment. And that, that's kind of just, that makes some sense, but it's kind of neutral. It's not like it's evil to put them together. Like we have, you know, 80% polyester and 10% cotton, you know. Right. Our clothes are all made of mixtures. Yeah. Yeah, so the, 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 pr the principle of it is what is the garment itself and the, the search for the not properly mixed together clothing, that is really a part of what the lesson is. It's behind what you know, the mezuzahs on the doors are about. That's what's behind the tzitzitot are about. These things are not things in of themselves. The, uh, and also the the, the clean, the unclean foods and such. These are not things in and of themselves. They are to help you with your spiritual discernment, to help you with your uh, moral decisions. They're not just something in and of themselves. So any last thoughts as uh, we close out here? All right, well, I'll close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us giving us a testimony of your servants through a long period of time. And Father, we just ask that you guide us in helping us to take your words into the world around us. And we thank you for having mercy on us. Mercy on us in our ignorance of your instructions. And as we learn, we thank you for taking us, moving us back onto the path 
We thank you for keeping us on the path. And Father, we just ask that you guide us in being beacons for your kingdom to the world around us, to the path that you've set forward. We thank you for these things in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.